Good morning once again. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm glad to have you here with us. If you've not heard that song before, we have played it a couple of times here at church, the song we just finished, The King of Kings. The first opening lines of that song go like this, in the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. We just finished this Christmas, if you remember, if you were here as part of that, a Christmas series that was a reminder of what are the lyrics of these songs that we sing, the Christmas carols that we sing, and we kind of dug in deeply uh, there on a number of those Christmas carols to be reminded of what it is that we're actually singing. I was a music major in college initially, and so uh, one of the things that our professors reminded us is that there's instrumental music and then there's vocal music, and the thing that vocal music has is that it has poetry and lyrics. That's the difference between the two. You're, sometimes you, you can play an incredible instrumental piece, but you can play a mediocre or sing a mediocre piece and say something incredible in the process. In the darkness we were waiting without hope and without light, so from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. I hope to share with you a few things this morning that bring that to light. And then actually we're going to sing that song at the end of the message as well. And kind of see if there's something that grows out of that. I'm younger than many of you. Uh, you didn't realize that perhaps. Some of you know that really, really well. But there's a few of you that I'm older than. And my kids remind me of that often. That as young as I think that I am, by hanging out with some of you, my kids still think that I'm very, very old. Do you remember when your dad was super old, even though he didn't think he was as old as you thought that he was? Remember that? So in 2006, uh, my daughter Dahlia was born. She's my oldest daughter. And so uh, the story that I'm about to share with you happened in 2006 when she was a baby. And so she thinks that this is ridiculously old. And I feel like it just happened yesterday. You know where I'm coming from on that. So at that time in my life, I did a ton of cycling. Biking was something that I loved to do. I'd be able to ride my bike on the road with a number of people uh, in the area that we lived in. Greenville, South Carolina is kind of a cycling haven. Uh, one of the guys who was on the uh, U.S. national team, uh, George Hincapi, is from that area and so brought a lot of excitement and energy to the cycling community. Uh, I particularly liked mountain biking when it came to uh, the type of thing. I love to be out in the woods. I love to be out there on a bike and just uh, getting after it out there. I decided for the first time in 2006 to actually compete in a race. And the first race that I ever competed in was in 2006. It was called the Tobacco Free for Life Ride. And so they were raising money for uh, this, this organization, a Tobacco Free for Life organization. And I did this ride, but anytime that you get a bunch of people together, it's not a ride, it's a race. Uh, you're not just going out there to enjoy each other, you're going out there to make sure that you beat to a pulp the other guys who are out there with you. And so I was in this race and I started out really fast because I was feeling really strong because uh, I had been training and I'd been getting excited about this thing and it was in the, the DuPont National Forest, which is down in that in that area and we took off quickly and I stayed with the leaders and we raced and raced and raced and raced. This is a 35 mile race out in the woods and at about seven miles in I hit the wall. A 
a 35-mile race, and about seven miles in, I hit the wall. And what happened is all of those leaders pulled away from me. I, I worked as hard as I could because turns out in mountain biking, there's a few mountains between you and the end of the race. And so I had to be able to climb these mountains. And as I'm going through it and as I'm getting up and down the hills, I go from like climbing and racing up the hill, staying with the leader pack, to now I'm pushing my bike up the hill. And then later and later and later in the race, I've come to a few checkpoints. I've gotten something to eat. And now near the end of the race, or so I hoped that it would be, because I had lost all track of reality, uh, I'm pushing my bike, sitting down on a log, pushing my bike, sitting down on a log, and not seeing a single person in the process. If you've ever done any type of adventure race, any type of endurance racing, it is never a good thing to be out there all alone. A few months later, I took my mother out on a bike ride, and we went, it was a mountain bike ride, and I took her to what I thought was a pretty easy place to take her. And so uh, we went for a ride in the woods, and we came to the top of this one hill, and she was struggling, and she sat down, and the one she tells the story, she said, we got to the top of the hill, I saw this little area with daisies all around it, and there was a place to sit down, and I thought this would be a good place to be buried. <laughs> this was the end. This was as far as she was about to go. And so I use those two analogies because ultimately some of you are going through this. This is an analogy for some of you of where your spiritual life is right now. Some of you have been a believer for only a short amount of time and you started out fast and you started out hot and you were so excited about the things of God and you pursued it with all of your might and all of a sudden you're getting tired and you're not sure what's going to happen. Uh, some of you have been slogging through this marathon called life for year after year after year, and it seems like everybody else is pulling away, and you're getting left out there all alone. Maybe somewhere along the way, you've heard this, this phrase of God never gives anyone more than they can handle. And you look back at your life, and you look at the situation that you're in right now, and you're saying, I don't believe that to be true at all. God, you've given me more than I can handle. This is too much to bear. I don't want to go through another thing again. I've found a patch of daisies. Let me die here. That's not a great feeling. It's not a good spot to be. It's not an exciting spot. It's not fun. It's not something you invite people in and say, hey, come enjoy this horrible moment with me. It's a moment we'd like to forget, many of us. When you're talking about the spiritual moment, that, that bottom, that rock bottom, that maybe some of you are getting closer and closer to every day. Maybe you'd like to forget that. But there's some things that we cannot afford to forget. You see, uncertainty of what's next, of how this thing will turn out, of where our lives will go, how God will interact with us, that uncertainty is a terrifying thing. And we cannot see, no matter how much we try, we cannot see the future. We do not know how it's going to end. We don't know how many more miles there are on the road because we're not even able to process what's in front of us right now. Some of you are in that moment spiritually. You could not, even if someone told you exactly what was coming next, you can't even process it. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that sometimes you have to look back and see God's promises in order to be able to take any more steps forward. Sometimes you need to look in the rearview mirror to be able to see what God has done, the signs of God's provision, the signs of God's faithfulness, so that you can continue on another day. God's faithfulness in the past should shape our assurance and perspective in the future. 
so that when the fasten your seatbelts sign comes on, you're ready. You know what to expect. Don't miss the signs. The signs of God's presence, the signs of God's provision. If you have a white sheet of paper that you got in your bulletin this morning, it's an outline just going to help you go through uh, where the message is going this morning. Don't miss the signs. When what is ahead of you makes you fearful, look back and remember. When looking ahead is fearful, what you're up against is fearful, look back and remember. This morning we're going to look at the life of a man who forgot. We're going to look at the life of a man who forgot. If you haven't been here with us over the last number of weeks, we started a sermon series to begin the new year here as a church, a six-week sermon series that across the board, across every platform here in the church, we're traveling together through this. So your children, if they're in the kids' programming this morning, they're getting the same uh, message that you're getting here this morning. In a child-packed uh, way, they're getting that, uh, but they're also uh, in our groups that are meeting throughout the week and then here in the Sunday services. We're all looking at the same thing, this, this book of First Kings. And specifically, uh, we've gone through the life of Solomon. We asked the question, is it wise? When we looked at what it looks like to live a life of wisdom. And we look at our lives and say, is it wise? This decision that I'm about to make. Not, is it legal? Not, is it permissible? But is it wise? And then we talked about the temple being put together. And that really what worship comes down to, and I alluded to this earlier, is worship is not about you, friends. Worship is about a holy God. And then sadly we saw Solomon's collapse, his fall from grace. There's a kingdom and the end of his kingdom, the, the kingdom is divided and has fallen apart. All because he chose to compromise. All because he chose little by little, small decision by small decision to compromise what God had told him to do. And last week Pastor Brian opened up God's word. He's able to look an introduction into the life of Elijah. And he says, wait a minute, before we go any further here, do you remember he said, so let's, let's dive in deep here. Let's cut into the slices and look at all the different ways that God has showed himself true. You should be able to see these shadows of things that you've heard of before and noticed before. All across scripture, the way that God continues to interact with his people. The way that he continues to send a redeemer and the necessity of that. But this week, week number five in this series, we're talking about the man who forgot. Why? The author of the book of James, James, says this. He says, Elijah was a human being even as we are. Elijah was a human being even as we are. Elijah was a human being even as we are. And he reaches a moment where he cannot go forward. And this is the moment. If you'll turn there in your Bibles, page 375, you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. New International Version, we're in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, if you're following digitally, uh, U version or something like that, I'm in the New International Version today. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey further into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die there. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better off than any of my ancestors. Now, 
If you pick up there, notice, I, I had to look it up. I, what is a broom bush? That's not something that I look up and, and, and be able to talk about regularly. It's a desert shrub that grows all across Arabia and throughout the, uh, the, the wilderness there in Judea. It's deep roots. They draw the moisture out of the ground because, because it is a desert. There's not much moisture to be found. So the roots have to go down very, very deep. And specifically in the Bible, we actually see this shrub or this tree shows up multiple times. In, in moments of despair as well as times of divine encounter. So first in the Bible, we see Job talks about the broom tree as a place of desolation, a place of ruin, a place of abandonment. The author of the book of Psalms connects the broom tree with mourning, with distress and punishment in Psalm 120. And here, Elijah has lost all hope. He has walked himself out into the wilderness. He has sat down under a broom tree, curled up in the fetal position, and prayed for death. Elijah is the man who forgot. And this morning, if you are reading through this with me, or if you are tracking along with me this morning, some of us would like to say, Elijah, 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 don't forget to remember some things. Don't forget to remember. My dad had, had a habit, and he's, maybe he still does. I don't live with him anymore, so I'm not totally sure. <laughs> but at the top of the stairs in our house, before he would go down, he would leave every morning for work. He would go down through the basement and out through the basement entrance as he left for work. And there was many mornings at the top of the stairs, there would be a chair sitting at the top of the stairs. And all the rest of us knew, and all my dad even knew, generally speaking, was that that chair was there to stop him from going down the stairs, and he would sit down in the chair and try to remember, why did I put this chair here? That was his plan. What did I forget to remember? Why is this chair here? And he'd sit down until he could remember, and then he would go on the rest of his day. This morning, there's a chair sitting here to be able to say, Elijah, don't forget to remember some of these things. We would say, Elijah... You're kind of a biblical superstar. Jesus himself talks about you, Elijah. In Luke chapter 4, he talks about it. He says, I assure you there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was severe famine throughout the land. Pastor Brian talked about this last week briefly, about how Elijah prayed and the skies were stopped and there was no rain for three years. Jesus the Son of God talks about Elijah when he's on, his er on the earth. Elijah, you're kind of a biblical superstar. The Apostle James talks about you. In James chapter 5, he says, Elijah was a human being even as we are, as we just discussed. He continues and he says, he prays earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. He points out the same circumstance that says that this man prayed and God actually stops nature from interacting with the rest of the world in order to fulfill his prayer. The verse continues in James. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced crops. That's where we're going to spend some time this morning. That transition from when it didn't rain until it does rain. Elijah, don't forget to remember you are never alone. Elijah's out under this tree. He's curled up in the fetal position. Spiritually speaking, he is burnt out. He is dead. He is tired. He cannot go another step. Elijah, don't forget to remember, you are never alone. Let's flash back for a moment. If we leave him there under the tree for just a second, figure out how is it that he got there? How is it that Elijah is curled up under the tree, afraid to go forward? If you remember... 
in the context, as we just discussed, that, that Solomon's kingdom splits in two. And now actually they're onto their eighth king. And it has been a dangerous time. It has been an unhealthy time spiritually. There are eight kings in and King Ahab comes to the scene. He was not a godly king. God would send this prophet Elijah to be his mouthpiece, to be able to speak to Ahab again and again and again. You're turning against God. He was the most wicked king Israel had ever seen until then. This is about 70 years after Solomon had died. The kingdom was split. And what does this king do? He goes and he marries Jezebel. All these years later, I can say Jezebel, and you get a picture of what Jezebel must be like. She is the evil queen in every Disney movie. She is the evil queen that none of us want a part of, and she's an awful person, and King Ahab is a childish king that just kind of follows her around, and clearly she is in charge of the kingdom. She rebuilt Jericho, the city of Jericho, that they marched around the city and the walls fell down. And God told them, do not ever rebuild that place. Guess what they did? They rebuilt Jericho. First Kings 16, we learn, he did more to provoke the Lord than all the kings who have gone before them. And God sends Elijah, the prophet, to go and warn Ahab. He says, there will be no rain for several years until you repent. Specifically, this is an attack, as, as Pastor Brian talked about last week, that, that Baal, this God that, that Jezebel had brought in, that all the worshipers of this idol, this Baal worship, that in the process, that Baal was supposed to be the God of rain. And so specifically, the Almighty God says, I'll put a stop to that. Three and a half years, he would put a stop to this powerless and fake God called Baal. But she had established Baal worship as a national religion and pretty much running the country. And as Acts, excuse me, as 1 Kings 18 opens, God sends Elijah back to Ahab. And he says, the time is now. I'm going to pray for rain and you will see it come. If you turn over a page there to 1 Kings chapter 18 to be able to see where we are, there's this picture that opens up of Obadiah. Obadiah is Ahab's right-hand man. Obadiah has been quietly hiding away uh, some of God's prophets. Obadiah has been at work, but he's still trying to serve King Ahab because he has no other options. And we see that Obadiah is out. He's been sent out by King Ahab to be able to find any stream, any source of water at all that they can actually protect what livestock they still have left before Israel is entirely wiped off the map because of the famine. And then Elijah meets Obadiah there, and he says, tell Ahab that I need to speak to him tomorrow. Obadiah says, wait, wait, wait a minute. you got to understand, you have to show up tomorrow. You have to show up. We've been looking for you for over three years. We haven't been able to find you anywhere. And what's going to happen is I'm going to go tell him that you're here, and as soon as I get to him, you're going to disappear into, in, in, into thin air, and, and now it's going to be my head on the chopping block. St. Elijah, we need you. We need you to be able to tell us what God has for us as a people. We've been waiting three and a half years, and it's desolate and it's dark. Do not leave us in this lurch. And he says, I will be there. And the next day he meets with King Ahab, and we read the story. We read the account of the showdown at Mount Carmel. The showdown at Mount Carmel. Now, how many of you are familiar with this passage? Most of you, many of you. 
This passage of the showdown at, at Mount Carmel is, is one of my favorite biblical passages. I, I remember as a kid having a cassette tape that I'd put into the player. You press it down, close the thing, click it on, and then there would be a beep every time I need to turn the page in my coloring book thing that I had in front of me to be able to hear the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. And I can't open up this passage without kind of hearing and feeling and touching that click followed by the beep, and then I turn the page, and then I hear that page, and then beep, and I turn the page. Anyone with me? Been there before? None of you. Excellent. I remember that so clearly 15, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, whatever it is. It's older than that. Hang on a second. I wasn't doing this in college. You get the idea. That would be a weird way to go through college, actually. That should be very helpful for many of us who struggled in school. That would be nice. If the teacher would give you the notes and they'd say, okay, wait for the beep, and you turn the page, that'd be handy. We're getting off track. I can remember it all these years later, and it seems like Elijah, when he's curled up under that tree, can't seem to remember it just a couple of weeks later. This epic battle at Mount Carmel. Elijah, don't forget to remember you are never alone. Here's your next fill-in for you. Elijah, you may have to stand alone, but you are never alone. You may have to stand alone, but you are never alone. 1 Kings chapter 18, then Elijah said to them, he has gathered everybody together, he has showed up for the battle. He says, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Go, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces. Put it on the wood, but do not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull. I will put it on the wood, and I will not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Now again, he's going to battle with this idol worship of Baal. And specifically, again, this Baal is supposed to be the God of rain. And so he's taking it to another level. He says, let's see if your God can bring down fire and consume this. What you say is good is what they say in regards to the battle that would be in front of them. So he encourages them. He says, you go first. You demonstrate how powerful Baal is. And if you're familiar with the passage, you're familiar with this account of the story that actually happened. Remember this, friends. This is, this is an account of Scripture that takes us back to a time frame when they're documenting this very specifically. They're telling us the time, the date, the location, so that we can know that it really does happen. And that day, the idol worshipers call out to their god, Baal, and nothing happens. Not so much as a whisper, not a breeze of air, absolutely nothing. It starts in the morning and by noon, Elijah begins mocking them. He says, maybe, maybe your God's off meditating. Maybe he's overslept and you need to wake him up. Maybe he's involved in some other project and he's distracted right now. Maybe you'll have to come back tomorrow. Maybe he's on vacation and he'll come back in a few weeks. I don't know how you're going to get a hold of him. Maybe you should do something more. And they ramp it up even more. And they begin cutting themselves and bleeding all over themselves, trying to call out to this God, this idol that is dead and fake and will not be able to do anything just to demonstrate this. This went on well past noon. 
They used every religious trick and strategy that they knew to make something happen on the altar, but still nothing happened. Not even a flicker of a response. Elijah, don't forget to remember you are not alone. You may have to stand alone, but you are not alone. You may have to rebuild what is broken. This is your next fill-in. But you are not alone. Then Elijah said to all the people, come over here. Come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Look how he does it specifically. Elijah takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to who the word of the Lord had come. This is a fragmented tribe. He's going out and he's getting 12 tribes, reminding them, bringing them back to the way that God had, had set them aside as his chosen people. He's taking them to remind them of who they were supposed to be, of who God had ordained them to be, and they'd gotten so far away from that. One for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying this, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built the altar in the name of the Lord. Again, if you're familiar with the passage, he builds the altar. He sets it up. He gets everything set. He brings the bowl in. He puts the bowl on. He cuts it up into pieces, puts it on the altar. But then he takes it to a whole new level. He sends the servants out. He sends the workers out. He says, come, bring some buckets. Bring a lot of buckets of water. Drench it all. Dig, dig a moat around the outside so we can definitely show that there's water all over the top of it, water all over uh, the, the sacrifice itself, water in the hole behind it. Remember, friends, it had not rained in three and a half years. So this was going to take some significant effort. From what we know, they're going to have to be able to go down uh, to the sea to be able to bring the water back up to be able to do this uh, at great expense to the men involved in the process. He prays after the third time. Reveal to this people that you are God, the true God, that you are giving these people another chance at repentance. And immediately, the fire of God in heaven falls down on the sacrifice. Falls down on the sacrifice. Yes, it burns the sacrifice, but it goes even further than that. The bowl is consumed. The stones are consumed. The water is consumed. It's all tore up. Why? Because God is demonstrating himself. And look what the response of the people is. The response is God is the true God. God is the true God. And immediately Elijah responds to the moment he says, well, then let's take care of this problem over here. And he immediately goes and he eliminates, he kills, he massacres all of the prophets of Baal. He said, if the name of Israel is going to be the name that is chosen by God for our people, we cannot have any compromise. We can't have any of this still here. And he goes and he purges idolatry from Israel. Then... After three and a half years of drought, Elijah begins praying for rain. If you're familiar with the passage, as Elijah is praying, he tells his servant, he says, go and look and see if there's any rain clouds coming. And, the, and he says, no, I don't see anything yet. And he says, well, go, go look again. And he says, no, there's nothing there. And he continues to pray. And he does this seven different times. And as the man is looking out, he's, he's peering out as Elijah is praying desperately for God to be able to move and to bring a rain cloud back in. He says, I see something about the size of a man's hand off in the distance. He says, Ahab, he says, send word to Ahab, get on your feet, it's about to rain. It's about to rain. 
Elijah said, hitch up your chariot, go down before the rain stops you from being able to do so. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt, and he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is somewhere between 17 and 30 miles away, friends. Elijah takes off running ahead of the king's horse and chariot and stays ahead of him the whole way. I don't know if it's 17 miles, I don't know if it's 30 miles, but I know that I cannot outrun a horse (laughs) that far. The power of God comes over him and he runs a marathon in front of King Ahab. Then we arrive back in the present. Elijah is not at Jezreel. When you turn the page over to chapter 19, he is some 100 miles even further away in Beersheba, hiding from Queen Jezebel, curled up in a fetal position, hiding under the broom tree. Elijah forgot to remember. Elijah forgot to remember. Don't forget to remember, you are never alone. You may have to stand alone, but you are never alone. You may have to rebuild what is broken, but you are never alone. You understand that there was so much more that was broken there than just the altar. There was so much more that was damaged in Israel. All of those things were broken, and he had worked tremendously to try to rebuild those. Even in the few moments that he had spent there on Mount Carmel, he was able to rebuild so much that had been damaged and been broken by these evil kings who had compromised everything. But you are never alone. You may have to rebuild what is broken, but you are never alone. But Elijah, friend, you will have to. So you you may not have to be alone. You may not be the only one standing with 450 Baal worshipers up against you. You may not have to rebuild all of what's come apart around you, but you will have to obey God's commands. You will have to obey God's command. You will have to, as the song says that we have grew up with many of us, the song, trust and obey. You will have to trust that what God is telling you to do is what you are to be doing. You must trust and obey. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey will be too much for you. So he obeyed. He got up. He ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for another 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Friends, this morning, as we've been trucking along through 1 Kings, perhaps you've been right there with us all along. But this morning, someone needs to ask you. God's word is asking you. The voice of God is asking you. What are you doing? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? The broom tree was remote. It was 100 miles away from everything, and yet God took him even further away, even more remote, even more lonely and more desperate. Verse 11, the Lord said, go out. Stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart. It shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. 
After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came what? A gentle whisper, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And the voice said again to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? The still, small voice speaks to Elijah. You understand the reason why we put Elijah on a pedestal, that, that he's, he's there, he's like this, this wizard seemingly who's fighting against the evil queen. Like if you put it in Disney terms, right? It's this guy that nobody can, can fight against, nobody can seem to get their arms around, and yet he is a weak human before a holy God. He can, he can stand in that cave and he have a, a hurricane come by. He can stand in the cave and have an earthquake tear everything apart. He can have a firestorm come near him, and yet it is the still small voice that's going to get through to Elijah. And in the still small voice, God tells him, Elijah, you are not alone. When God asks him, why are you here? And he says, well, because I'm the only one. There's nobody else who's following you, no one else who's serving you. He says, stop it. You are not alone. I've got 7,000 prophets that I have set aside for this task at hand. I'm up to things that you will never understand. I have such a bigger picture than you will ever be able to capture in your small mind, Elijah. You are not alone. This morning you may need to hear this again because Elijah needed to hear it again. You are not alone. The situation that you are in, the circumstances that you are in, the spot that you are in, you may be looking around and say, you know what, I'm actually, I'm not afraid because I know God's there. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried. I'm not anxious. I'm just tired. I'm just tired. I don't know if I can go out and fight this battle, the spiritual warfare of life another day. That's what Elijah is saying. He says, I, I, can't go to, I can't go to battle anymore. It's just me. He says, you're not alone. You're not alone. He says, I know you're tired, Elijah. I know you're weak, Elijah. But child, I'm not tired. <laughs> I'm not weak. My strength is sufficient for you, don't forget to remember you are not alone. Elijah will leave this spot encouraged, strengthened, knowing that he had been in the presence of God, that the provision of God would be sufficient for him, that the strength of God would be enough for him to move forward, but he had to stop and listen for that small voice. When you're afraid to move forward, maybe you are with whatever it is that you're dealing with in your life this morning in a room of this size. Many, many, many of you are dealing with difficult things. I use the analogy of the bike ride at the beginning of this sermon. Let me use this analogy instead perhaps. And I've never done this. But a mountain climber will climb up a mountain. Seemingly the, 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 the face of the mountain is an incredible uh, uh, cliff wall. And they continue to climb. They continue. But if you're familiar with what they do, as they go, they stick in these attachments into the rock to be able to tether themselves as they go. 
And they're going to get to a spot where it doesn't seem like they can go on any further. It doesn't seem like there's any way that they could continue on. They're exhausted. They're tired. The wind is beating on them on the side of the mountain. You know what they need to do? Then you better look down and see that line of all the anchor points all the way down. Because that's what we have when God provides for you and for me. That's what we have when the strength of God interacts with humankind. It's anchor points. Anchor points in our own lives. And what we have in front of us when we have scripture is we have the ability to see anchor points that are so much bigger than us. 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago. To be able to, to look back and see these anchor points. To be able to say God is interacting with us. Don't forget to remember, you are not alone. As the band comes this morning, maybe there's some words of Elijah that are going to need to echo in your ears today. If we go back to this battle at Mount Carmel, the showdown at Mount Carmel. Elijah needs to hear his own words that he spoke to people. It seems as though he's forgotten them himself. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Now we have here this morning three sections of people. Just like there were three sections of people there at Mount Carmel. The first segment of people is there and they are with Elijah. Say, God is God. I want to follow you. Obadiah is waiting for someone like Elijah to step up. And then there's another group of people, the Baal worshipers, just like there's a group here this morning that say, I don't believe any of what you're sharing this morning. I don't believe any of it to be true. I don't believe any of it to be valuable. I don't believe it to be history. I don't believe it to be fact. I don't care what you have to say. And then there's the third group of people. The third group of people that he is speaking to there at Mount Carmel. The group of people that he says, if Baal is God, you follow him. But if God is God, you follow him. And that's the end of it. Why are you wavering? I think there's a significant portion of our congregations and our churches in America and our church here this morning. We're no different. They need to be asked the question, why are you wavering? If God is God, if the Lord is God, follow him. There's no question that the Holy Spirit helps us answer any more than that. Because some of you are in a dark cave. You're in, you're in the fetal position. You don't know how to go. You don't know how to move forward. And the, the answer is, if God is God, if the Lord is God, then follow him. And that's it. And God is speaking to you in a small voice that says, I know you're not going to understand the rest of it. Follow me. How long will you waver between two opinions that the Lord is God? Follow him. You see, when Jesus talks about Elijah, do you remember when he refers to Elijah in Luke chapter 4? He refers to Elijah, talks about all that Elijah went through. He talks about there being famine in the land, and for three years there is no rain in the land. And you know what he also talks about? He says, there are widows all over the land. But God decided to help one widow through Elijah's life. There's a very specific plan that God had for Elijah's life, and that was the one that he needed to follow. Don't forget to remember, you are never alone. You are never alone. In the darkness, we were waiting without hope and without light until from heaven you came running.
with mercy in your eyes. As the ushers come forward this morning, I pray that you would respond to God's word by saying, God, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. I'm not sure if I can do it. I'm not sure of any of those things, but you're going to have to provide for me. You're going to have to give me strength to be able to move forward. Help me not to forget to remember all those anchor points. In the darkness, we were waiting without hope and with light. From heaven, you came running. There was mercy in your eyes. As we sing these words to the song in just a moment, the story goes forward to our Savior on a cross and the way that he provides for you and for me. If the Lord is God, follow him. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Lord, the challenge is there. A challenge that there are many things that we will experience in this life, many situations we will come into. Lord, we may never, most likely will never experience anything like Elijah did. But James tells us he's a man just like, just like the rest of us. And he came to a, a moment of fear and anxiety just like the rest of us do. Lord, if there's just one here, but I believe there's many more who need to respond to that challenge. If God is God, then follow him. And that's the end of the story, Lord. And we trust that you remind us and encourage us that we are not alone. Help us not to forget to remember that. In Jesus' name we pray.